0: Americans, this is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day.
1: Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane
2: Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and leave some positive reviews. Today, we're going to be talking about economic stuff
1: with Dustin Schneider. So we want to talk about a couple different topics. But before we get into that, it might be useful for you to just talk a little bit about your background, who you are, and so on and so forth.
0: Sure. Uh, My name is Dustin Schneider. Uh, I have uh, only had one real job. I was a uh, commodity trader um, in Chicago on the floor of the exchange for, uh, uh, gosh, 10 years and then off the floor for another seven. And my background is in economics. I studied economics at Vanderbilt and, you know, I've been applying economics in the marketplace for a long time now. So that's kind of the, the quick and dirty of it.
1: Yeah. So how does the uh, commodities trading thing work? I've seen in like movies, uh, you know, there's a stock exchange and then in Chicago, there's a commodity exchange or whatever, but you're like trading product. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I traded futures um, contracts, particularly as they pertain to cattle. A futures contract is just a, it it was born out of a forward contract, which is just if, you know, you had some cattle and uh, I needed cattle and we made an agreement, but um, we wanted to fix the price today for a delivery in the future, that would start a forward contract. And then futures arose when they standardized those so that if I had contracted for your cattle, I could then sell them to Doug and they would you know, cross each other out. So you have futures contracts um, in cattle for six months of the year and feed cattle for six months of the year. And so you have lots of different months of deliverable supplies. And so I used to try to arbitrage between those months and find value. So that was kind of the name of the game.
1: Yeah. And uh, I suppose uh, being a Texan cattle futures trading is obviously, you know, there's there's an understandable connection there. So, I mean, does that require like a lot of, is it basically you can trade whatever, maybe you specialize in one
0: thing, but it doesn't require a lot of in-depth knowledge about the cattle industry, or I mean, there were, traders are you know in as many different spades as, as I think doctors are. I mean, there are some that that knew nothing about the product they're trading, and they trade based on feel or based on a charting pattern. I traded much more fundamentally. I knew a decent bit about cattle and, and what would move the market and what would you know cause the price to change. Uh, the cattle market is is very seasonal, so you get a, a pretty good uh, seasonal move in the market. It tends to make it its lows. Kind of this time of year, and it makes its highs in the winter, uh, December through you know April of the next year. So there's a big seasonality to it. Uh, prices of you know feedstocks and grains are, are really important as well, and as well as competing proteins. If pork is super cheap, it's hard to sell beef for a lot. If we're swimming in chicken, it's hard to move a lot of beef. So there were always the you know economic underpinnings of what was going on in the marketplace, kind of coming to life every day. So that was really cool. It was fun to be yeah. a part of. There obviously are some doctors who don't
1: uh, <laughs> who don't know what they don't know anything about medicine. I guess maybe <laughs> maybe not. Um, you also mentioned that you had like an economics background. You studied that or whatever. I mean, is that useful or is it kind of like um, you know it's it's more of a practitioner type of you know?
0: Uh, well, I thought it was extremely useful because uh, you know every day we talk about supply and demand and we talk about you know what the Federal Reserve does moves all the financial markets in enormous ways. Um, and so understanding the interplay of what is governing those Fed governors decisions in terms of what they're going to do with monetary policy, I think is critical to understanding any kind of financial market because uh, the Fed is incredibly important and um, they move markets and they move prices and they move inflation and they move unemployment. What they do matters enormously. And so, you know, w- when we were in high-level econ classes, we spent a lot of time talking about what the Fed should do. And this was in 2002. So it's, it's strange to be in this world now where we are at, uh, you know, what is what I learned in college was, you know, full employment. I think they called it the Nehru, which is not exactly a, <laughs> a, yeah. a non-accelerating inflationary rate of unemployment and at the time we believed that to be around 5% and now we're you know well past that and the fed is considering cutting rates it's uh it's a new world for sure compared to you know almost 20 years ago
2: i wanted to ask you about the long term outlook for beef and the reason i'm asking that is it seems that a lot of companies are catering to vegans making meatless meat products right and also you have a uh, a situation where a lot of venture capitalists apparently are sort of searching for the the holy grail of how to make lab grown meat. What does all that do for uh, the
0: outlook for, for for the cattle industry in general? Uh, I mean, I think it's it's a, a significant headwind. Um, you know, the uh, the Beyond Meats of the world have gotten some real traction. I mean, there are uh, impossible burgers on the menu a lot of places um, even to fast food restaurants and such. I don't know that I've had one I probably should try one. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a real hurdle for the cattle industry to get over. From my understanding you know these impossible burgers are not materially healthier for people than burgers that are made of beef but they are they are thought to be better for the environment. Uh, the cattle industry gets a lot of flack for the greenhouse emissions. That are created by uh, by bovines because of the nature of their stomachs, they exhale gases that are bad for or thought to be bad for you know global warming. And as long as they're alive, they're going to keep you know sort of burping up these gases you know, I think a lot could be said for actually in defense of bovines as a, as a genus, if they were just handled a little bit differently, herd animals in general are, are potentially incredibly helpful to the environment. There was a Ted talk, his name's Alan Savory, where they show these, these herds in Africa that are moved around properly. And and when herd animals are moved around properly. They're walking um, fertilizers of the environment because they they don't want to stay in place and they will go and and poop and their poop is, is very good fertilizer and then proceed to then trample it into the ground, you know, magnifying the effect. And they've managed to green a lot of very arid spaces in the third world using herd animals. So it's it's not they're not necessarily the environmental catastrophe that I think that they're made out to be. In answer to your question, I do think that the beef industry has um, some 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 real concerns from meatless meat, but you know that will remain to be the purview of the consumer whether they want to go that route or not. I still yeah. like steaks.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan of steaks as well. Actually, it is interesting because uh, just in the last uh, just this year, I believe you've seen. A move in uh, a number of different states to pass kind of uh, anti-marketing restriction laws uh, on about like veggie burgers or Impossible burgers or you know turkey bacon or other things, saying that you can't like. Advertise things that are not flesh, you know, not meat as meat-like products. There was a bill in Texas to do that, didn't pass. But yeah, I think Louisiana they passed one, Mississippi, some some other states. From my perspective, obviously, if people want to have veggie burgers or whatever, or the Impossible Burger, I which I have had, I. Uh, I had the Impossible Burger. I would say it's maybe 90% there. It's not, not quite there, at least at least for me. But, you know, it's definitely a lot better than your, you know, traditional tofu stuff that you get in the store or whatever. But, you know, like the people that are buying that stuff, it's not like they, they, they know it's not meat. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, if they start packaging it so that it looks similar, I think that every consumer would agree that it should be labeled as such so that you know if you're getting beef that, you know, came from a cow or beef that came from a dish or, you know. But not even beef,
2: right?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. But yeah, if people do want that,
1: should be allowed to to do that and market it that way.
2: I heard somebody a while back, and I forget who was making this point, but it may have been Jonah Goldberg. But somebody was making the point that uh, there's something somewhat humorous about all of this that you have vegans who, for you know their own personal moral and ethical reasons, don't believe we should be eating meat, and yet they eat. Eat food that is meant to be meat-like and and to fool you that it's meat. And he was making the analogy of uh, cannibalism that we would say, well, that's unethical to eat other people. But the last thing we would do is actually go meet, make something like uh, – taste like cannibal food uh, or something like that. So it's, it is kind of a little bit perplexing.
0: Well – for sure. Yeah, I think veganism runs into some interesting moral quandaries when you start to think about, well, if it's wrong to kill an animal, then what should we do with predators? I mean, should we in- incarcerate wolves? Because we're killing lots of animals. You know, I, I don't see it that way. I think that we are, we are part of the food chain and that we make it better. And you know, just as a wolf is part of the food chain is actually helpful to, you know, the, the animals that it eats and that it controls their population so that the ones that are around can survive and thrive. I think humans have a similar result. There's been a lot of trade uncertainty and some of that is certainly affecting
2: agriculture. What's your perspective on just how much the the, the trade wars um, are having on the cattle industry?
0: Oh, they're huge. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons I, I hate trading these days. Because trying to trade on what Trump is going to do is, is very <laughs> very difficult to figure, and, and not just that, but the way that the marketplace will figure in what Trump is is likely to do. Uh, the last big thematic trade that I made in cattle was it was a big short position, and it was because the the marketplace was anticipating uh, an awful lot of great news coming out of China that I thought was. Um, It was just tremendously overvaluing the China play that the Chinese have never bought material amounts of beef from the United States. They just don't. And, you know, the Chinese eat a lot of pork, but not a lot of American beef. If they were going to get beef, it's much, much more likely that they would get it from Australia because they have the obvious uh, proximity advantage. Uh, But the Chinese don't eat a ton of beef. Um, it's, It's a very expensive product and so the futures market and a lot of the my friends and i that are we were cattle guys we would we would coin them the yale guys and it's it's sort of the, <laughs> the people we thought were a little bit removed from uh the actual cattle industry that um were in the hedge fund world were are just buying the the crap out of these china rumors and uh it, it turned out that they you know they were wrong and the market broke a lot uh, there was an awful lot of cattle out there um, as well, which was kind of the the genus for wanting to be short as well. Right now, we are we are absolutely at the rails in terms of capacity for we can only kill so many cattle, and we're there. We have huge supplies of cattle right now in the United States, the, the biggest, almost the biggest they've ever been. Uh, particularly when you consider the fact that the cattle that we have are a lot meatier; um, their the carcasses are bigger than they were in years past. So there's a ton of meat out there. So who would be
1: internationally some of the other big suppliers in terms of cattle? You
0: mentioned Australia. Uh, South America is big. Um, I I believe that the biggest uh, cattle herd in in the world is actually in India. But uh, paradoxically, they, they don't kill any of them. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, religious. Yeah. For, it, it, for Religious reasons. Yeah. Uh, but the other big cattle suppliers, they don't they don't have a lot of cattle in Europe uh, would be South America, where they have uh, a climate and they, they feed them mostly grass in South America. Whereas in the United States, we're we're finishing them on on corn for the most part, and then Australia is a, is a pretty large um, market for beef as well.
1: When people are making these sorts of trading decisions, it seems like there's all sorts of things that might seem tangential to the industry itself that you would need to consider. You meant you know you you mentioned the Federal Reserve, that's an obvious one. Tariff issues, but I guess you know you could think well, you know if, if something happens with the price of oil, that would affect transport. Uh, I don't know if that impacts the people.
0: yeah more grain prices are really important because that's what we're feeding the animals. so right. you know, as corn prices rise, particularly I, I traded both feeder cattle and we call them fat cattle. Feeder cattle are you know around 750 pounds. You could use that term to describe an animal from probably 550 to 800 pounds. Uh, but that animal's going to live another three or four months before it's ready to be made into into steaks. Uh, the fat cattle contract is the contract for the finished product. So, um, you know, those are, those are 1,250 pound animals approximately, and they're ready to be made into steaks. And so as the price of corn would go up, we'd always see the price of feeder cattle decline relative to the fat cattle because it's going to cost more to feed them. And you could see that, you know, working in almost real time. It was, it was pretty interesting to watch.
2: Let's
1: turn a little bit and talk about the minimum wage. 'Cause this is something that Dustin, you and I were having a conversation about this the other day. It's sort of interesting. Obviously, there have been a number of proposals out there to raise the minimum wage, I think, to $15 an hour. Some localities, municipalities have done this. It's a big issue. I think, you know, Bernie Sanders and other people have proposed that nationally. You know, just what's your perspective on the minimum wage issue?
0: Well, you know, it's, there are a couple of caveats to the way I think you have to discuss it. The one thing that I thought that almost everyone in the country should agree is that the wage should not be the same minimum Uh, across the country, just because the economy is is so diverse, you know, you go someplace with a very low cost of living, call it, you know, Manhattan, Kansas. You can't have the same price floor that you have in New York. If you pick the same floor, you're either going to have one that's way too high for the low cost rural areas. Or not meaningful in the cities. So I think that to have a national minimum wage in a country where the economy is so diverse and where the cost of living varies so much from local to locale is silly. I don't think that makes any sense at all.
1: Yeah, no, that, I think that's absolutely right. I, I know, for example, federal employees. You know, there's a um, there's a wage scale for federal employees, but that is adjusted depending on where you are throughout the country. So that if you are living in Kansas and you're a grade. 13 you know your gs 13 or whatever you're not going to make as much as if you're a gs 13 in new york city just but you know because it cost a living differences right and other stuff like that so this is same same issue i think would definitely apply to
0: the minimum wage as well that is one thing but there's some
1: other issues i think with the minimum wage too
0: sure i mean i think by definition you're you're setting a you know to have a meaningful minimum wage it means that you have um increase the price floor beyond the point where it's clearing. That is where, you know, supply equals demand. That's just by definition. So if you've done it, you've, you've have to create unemployment. Uh, Otherwise it it just wouldn't have happened. You have a lot of problems when you start messing with market outcomes. And I think one of the big ones is you're going to create a huge supply of people that's making the same wage that are of differing skill levels. Um, You know, if you were already making 15 bucks an hour and now you're making the same as someone who is newer and not as skilled, uh, there seems to be a fairness issue there. I think one of the most deleterious uh, impacts that you'll get from a, a national minimum wage is that you will make labor at that wage dispensable. And those workers will not be treated well because they are just a commodity. And when, when you have workers in, in any economy that are being paid more than their employers believe they're worth, that's not a recipe for success, I don't think. So I want to talk a little bit about socialism. That's an issue
1: we've discussed on the program a number of times before and, you know, seems to like a lot more fashionable these days, particularly among younger people than in the past. I did wonder, you know, as someone like, if you think about like what is the heart of capitalism, something like trading, you know, traders or or whatnot, you know, would, would be somewhat close to that. I mean, you're not, you're still, you're still grounded in like, physical products or whatever, not like financialization, I guess, but uh, other, I guess, futures. But as someone who's kind of seen the workings of capitalism from the ground level, do you have a perspective on why socialism seems to be so appealing to people these days?
0: Um, you know, I think that the I, you know, it's it's hard for me. I don't believe in socialism, so it's a little hard for me to get my head around why people think that that it's it's a good idea. But you know, one of the things that I thought was great about capitalism and about market outcomes in general is that they're intensely fair and we don't run out of things. Um, you know, price is the way in which we ration goods in a capitalist economy. And in, in an economy where price is no longer the way in which we ration goods, you have to find another way to ration goods. And I think it's very difficult to find another way to ration goods that works as well as uh, a free market. You know, th- th- there were, you know, famous cases of this happening in sort of reverse in non-market economies where they'd, they'd run out of stuff. And that's not good, you know, and, and markets are also very adaptive in that, If we start running out of corn, the price goes up a lot, and we ration the use, as opposed to completely running out and being like, "Oh, whoops, what do we do now?" You know, I I think a lot of the appeal of socialism is coming from, I think, a misconception that the United States could essentially confiscate a lot of the wealth of billionaires, um, and it will pay for everything. And I think that that's a tremendous misnomer. Right? Uh, There's not enough money out there to do it that way. I think to pay for the kind of things that People want, I mean, something like the Green New Deal. I, I don't think there's any way to pay for. Uh, it's just impossible. You just have to print the money. But, you know, a lot of the the socialist stuff, in order to really pay for it, you need to have a much bigger tax base than even you know people with 10 plus million. You need to go down to the people that are in the hundred thousandaires to, to get the kind of money that you need to pay for the kind of stuff that they want to do.
1: Yeah, uh, I remember uh, when they they so they recently did the first of the Democratic debates, and there was a part in one of them where Bill De Blasio, the mayor of New York City, was talking about all the different wonderful things that he wanted to do, and he said, "There's plenty of money to do all this, you know. There's plenty of money in America; it's just in the wrong hands." And you know, like to me, that seems like a little chilling because you know you read history about the French Revolution or whatever; it's like. Uh, how are you going to get the money into the right hands, Bill de Blasio? One common thing that we have is like a, a final question is, you know, what's your favorite movie that relates to, you know, the general topic that we're discussing? So I don't know. You know, there certainly have been a number of movies centered on the stock market, you
0: know, Wall Street or Boiler Room. Sure. Or-
2: Has there been a movie about the life of uh, Hillary Clinton? <laughs>
0: Uh, you know Hillary Clinton was the uh, was the greatest cattle trader in the history of time. She never had a losing trade. Yeah, right. Uh, so, uh,
1: and uh, for for our, our listeners who who may not know, there's a historical incident when Hillary was. This was I don't know back in the early '80s, maybe in the '70s. I think uh, Bill. I don't know if he had become governor of Arkansas yet, or if he was the attorney general or something. But she opened an account to do cattle's future trading. And mm-hmm. it ended up making an a, like an absurd amount of money at it in a short time, and almost you know it was an un- unbelievable amount. And I don't mean that unbelievable in the sense that you can't believe that she really did that legitimately, as opposed to just wow, that's amazing. One of the many storied
0: episodes. It is odd that she would have such unprecedented success and then quit as well. Yes, um, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, my favorite, you know, the, the only movie that I know of that's ever been really made about commodity traders is Trading Places um, yes, right. with uh, Freddie Murray and uh, Dan Aykroyd, which was great. I think they did a great job of uh, kind of portraying that whole world a little bit. You know, more recently, they, they come out with The Wolf of Wall Street, which uh, there are some characters in the trading world, and uh, I, I wish I could say that The Wolf of Wall Street was a more of a misrepresentation of some of the people in. The, in than it is but uh sadly i think that a lot of the industry is is sort of not in terms of the impropriety in a financial sense but in terms of the lifestyles of a lot of those guys were were pretty crazy and uh not something that i think people should emulate and i don't know why that maybe that just follows money uh, i don't know if it has anything in particular to do with uh people that uh embrace risk taking but uh yeah it's
1: prob- probably a
0: little mm-hmm. bit of that i would think uh For sure. Um, Yeah, there there is. It's an interesting uh, kind of question because, you know, uh, substance abuse and trading uh, are, are tremendously correlated, I would say, of the people that I used to work with. A solid three quarters of them had substance abuse issues. And I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg kind of thing. You know, people with those kind of issues gravitate towards trading or if trading brings out those issues in them. That's kind of a million dollar question.
1: All right. Well, uh, on that cheery note, I think we'll end it. Thank you for joining us.